Life. Dignity. Security. Freedom. Freedom. Respect. Justice. 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 Equality. Equality. Remedy. Protection. Fairness. Fair trial. Listeners on CJTR Community Radio at 91.3 FM and over the internet at cjtr.ca. We can also be heard on SaskTel Max at channel 806 and Access Communications Digital Service at channel 700. Wherever you are, welcome to Human Rights Radio, hosted weekly by Amnesty International volunteers. Our theme song is titled 30 Words, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, written and performed by REM and a collection of musicians from around the world. I'm Jim Hutchings, and with me are my co-host, Daleen Sliz, and special guest Peter Gilmer, an activist with the Regina Anti-Poverty Ministry, who's going to help us understand the poverty issue generally and where we live. Welcome, everyone. Thank you, Jim. Great to be back. <laughs> Welcome, I, Peter. I, I was looking Thank at. You. I, I forgot to to check and see. That was about a year ago. I think we've had you on. Yeah, I think June of 2015. So, yeah. yeah, and uh, it's an issue that doesn't go away. No, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. and um, it could be argued that maybe things aren't getting better, but we'll get to that. We'll get in that first. <laughs> if you'll indulge me, I would just like to set the stage um, for our discussion. Uh, with a quote and a brief background about Peter. Um, here's the quote. Nobody chooses to be poor. Poverty is the result of public policy and economic inequality that is legislated. We can legislate poverty. We can legislate an end to poverty if we choose as a society to do so. Yeah, I like that quote. I think, do you? Yeah, I think I came up with that. Yes, you did, part. actually. Yeah. Very good, very good. Um, so, Peter... And correct me if, if any of this is incorrect. You were adopted at three months old by Bill and Dorothy Gilmer. Correct. You grew up in Melfort and attended Broadway Elementary School, where you were introduced to a broad spectrum of people of the community. 
Yeah. I, one thing I'll just mention on that is that um, that I think that was in in many ways formative for me in that uh, the the classrooms where I, I was in were probably more diverse than the community around us, and I think mm-hmm. that that's had a lasting impact. Um, but it's all it's also I think over time made me recognize that that inequality uh, it has has longer term consequences as mm-hmm. well. Right. Yeah. Your dad was a United Church minister, and after hearing Martin Luther King Jr. speak in Ohio in the mid-1950s, he incorporated some of those views into his own sermons. So I would say that both your mom and your dad influenced the direction that you inevitably took. And had you not taken the route that you are taking today, or have taken for the last 23 years approximately, you would have become a professional boxer. Well, I actually, one thing I like to brag about was that in, I was a 1982 provincial amateur welterweight champion. So, uh, I haven't thrown a punch in probably 30 years, but, uh, but yeah, at the, at the time that meant a lot to me. So. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that was kind of a dream uh, as a teenager. But I, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, 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 I was doing quite well as an amateur boxer, but lost several fights in a row to end my my, my fighting career. So <laughs> your uh, prolific yeah, boxing right. career. Yeah, four four losses in a row at the tail end t- t- told me that uh, yeah, it wasn't going further. <laughs> <laughs> no broken nose or anything like that. Actually, five. Yeah, five. Oh, five. Yeah, I had my nose broke five times oh. during my my boxing time. Yeah. Well, it looks pretty good, actually. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so um, I would like to, to launch into this discussion by saying that Saskatchewan clearly is not living up to its obligations under the UN's International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, which specifically states that in accordance with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the ideal of free human beings enjoying freedom from fear and want can only be achieved if conditions are created whereby everyone may enjoy his economic, social, and cultural rights as well as his civil and political rights. So Saskatchewan's in an economic downturn. This is not the time to be making cuts to social assistance programs. No, absolutely not. When more people are hurting, that's the time when you want to make sure that you have that social support system in place. And the part of the irony for us too is that we've we're coming out of a period of economic boom, which really didn't benefit um, the lowest income people. In fact, for those who were on fixed incomes, they found that while the cost of living was was rising, it was became much more difficult to meet basic needs, uh, particularly in relation to housing, but certainly food, utilities, and and other basic needs uh, rose as well. So many people were worse off. And one of the things that we've mentioned is that in 2013, which was, you know, while we were still in in a boom period, uh, we had at that time the highest number of millionaires in our province's history and a really strong growth of millionaires, but we also had the highest growth of food bank usage in the country. So that, that inequality, I think, um, found itself with people on, on the low end of the economic ladder finding things tougher during economic good times. And now that we're in a downturn, uh, and there's, um, provi- provincial revenues are under stress uh, unfortunately, one of the first places that's being looked at to cut is t- uh, programs to the most vulnerable and benefits to to those who need them the most. Yesterday, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead, Jim. No, it's just good. All sorts of things go through my head, mm-hmm. and I know one of the one of the things 
is the tendency over the last 20 or 30 years for the earnings of CEOs to go through the roof where they used to be maybe 30 times what the frontline workers were getting. Now it's more like 300 times what the frontline workers getting. And um, uh, I confess to sounding a little bit like a lefty here, but I'm thinking that these guys that are making five and six million dollars a year our income tax should hit them really hard. <laughs> I agree. I mean, I think that we need to have a much more progressive uh, personal income tax system than we do. And, you know, there's been a lot of talk recently as, the, as there's discussions around the cuts to benefits for people with disabilities about issues of fairness and equity. And I guess uh, in the big picture, I would suggest that a real, the real issue of fairness and equity in our society is looking to see that those who have the most sacrifice a little bit more rather than those who have the least mm -hmm. uh, losing more of, of the little that they have, which yeah. is, is what we're seeing. Right. And another issue along the same line, there's been a tendency to reduce corporate income tax. And this was supposed to create jobs when actually what has happened is that it's allowed the big corporations to stack up cash, which is not being used for anything uh, when it could be used for social programs. Yeah, and it, what's really interesting on, on that front is that it, it's been an issue f of concern for us for a long time, the issue of, of a, the need for a fair taxation system, which would include, um, you know, higher personal income taxes on, on the upper end, uh, but also increased corporate taxes and looking at resource royalties as well. I think that we're overdue for a royalty review. Uh, a, a heritage fund would be nice, something mm -hmm. that we could, we could stock money away in good economic times to make sure that we can uh, sustain our key social programs when in more difficult times. But one thing that's happened recently is that um, the UN Committee on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights in its concluding observations about Canada and all the provinces, that was one of their critiques was, was low corporate tax rates. And this is the first time that they've delved into that area. They've been mm -hmm. very critical of Canada not being able to meet basic social and economic rights like an adequate standard of living and, and living wage and um, putting the need to put more resources into housing and child care, etc. But this is the first time that they've clearly identified that we should have higher corporate tax rates and, and a better distribution of wealth in order to make that happen. And obviously in the country as wealthy as ours is, ultimately um, nobody should should be poor. We, yep. we should be able to, to eliminate poverty if, yeah, if that's like a, a like key priority. Their, their excuse has been, well, you give them money to work with and, and there'll be expansion, there'll be jobs, and that really hasn't happened. What, what has happened is our CEOs have been making a lot more money, and uh, what hasn't been spent there has just been kind of stacking up in their treasuries and uh, not being used. And I can remember our, uh, our uh, governor of, uh, of the Bank of Canada wistfully remarking that he wished that some of these companies would spend their money because while you know in a recession they don't want to spend money and if they did that would help us get out of a recession right <laughs> well i do think that i mean the the other side of that is that when you put more 
income in the hands of lower and lower income and lower middle income folks uh, that's money that immediately circulates in the economy exactly uh, which is good for good for small businesses and, and good for for local economies so I think that there's real there's real economic strength mm-hmm. to, to having a better distribution yeah. of income and uh, certainly in Saskatchewan we've seen um, there was a study by the Saskatchewan branch of the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives that showed that um, the gap between the top 20% of families or the comparison between the top 20% of families with children and the bottom 20% was basically nine times the income, uh, which had, at that at the time the study was done in 2009 was the highest gap in the country. So uh, we, we it, it's not just a, a, a national or an international issue. It's a big issue mm-hmm. here at home, that, that disparity and that growing gap. But there is some upward pressure that we're seeing as far as wages are concerned. Uh, $15 minimum wage uh, is, is being pushed really hard in some areas. And you have to ask yourself, well, if $15 works, why stop there? Right. <laughs> well, I mean, know that another study by Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives uh, back in 2014 had showed that at, at that time, and I think this is actually based in 2011 or 2011 census information, that a uh, two-parent family with two kids uh each each parent would have to working full time would have to have a wage of uh, sixteen dollars and forty six cents in order to have uh, an actual living wage where they could meet their their housing child care uh, and other basic needs and, and have just a small contingency in education funds so um, I, it seemed like a very reasonable amount but re- the reality is that fifty five thousand households in Regina to live below that that figure so uh yeah certainly the push for for a living wage is something that we've been connected to and it's something that we do connect to the human rights uh to a human rights framework because uh, under the covenant on economic social and cultural rights uh, a living wage is is identified as as a basic human right so i think that, that we need to start looking at and entrenching some of these rights in enforceable legislation and not just leave them to the social policy or the public policy realm uh, but yeah we're excited about the the living wage campaigns that are occurring across North America and certainly the the Bernie Sanders campaign in in the US uh, provided uh, some attention to the issue as as well um, so you know I know that we're not going to get there overnight but we need to be moving much more aggressively towards living wage than than what we've seen to date yeah you really have to change the way people think about the issue yeah you know and once again it's you know it there's all kinds of benefits and you know there's the benefit of of having low-income workers putting more money into the local economy or using all their their disposable income in the local economy uh you have less employee turnover when when people have decent wages um and you know some of the critiques are that you know along with it's often said that employment will uh will decline when when the minimum wage goes up or if you move to a living 
living wage. Uh, but there's no empirical research of that. No. All the research that's been done on it would suggest that employment actually improves or increases when, when, um, when low-wage workers make more. Uh, and inflation, if we look at our society, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the areas where we've seen the highest inflation uh, in recent years, particularly, particularly housing, rents, etc., uh, that increase has very has nothing to do with with um, with low wage workers and increased uh, increased wages. I think there's been a few communities in the states that have actually gone ahead and experimented with the fifteen dollar minimum wage, and there all the doomsayers were saying, "Oh, you know, the sky is definitely going to fall," and the reverse has happened. Right? They yeah. found that it it has actually stimulated business. Yeah, the classic study I've heard on this uh, goes back to the '90s. A study between New Jersey and Pennsylvania, where New Jersey had a minimum wage increase and Pennsylvania didn't, and they found that even uh, even in the low wage sector and in the fast food industry in particular, uh, there was actually a big growth in employment, uh, in New Jersey and, and Pennsylvania lagged way behind. And, um, the study suggested that really the difference was that, uh, putting more income into the hands of low wage workers was good for, for the economy in New Jersey. Yeah. And I think a similar, not official experiment, but it, it actually has happened be- between Minnesota and Wisconsin, where you've got uh, quite an austerity-minded uh, administration in Wisconsin, and the reverse is true over in Minnesota, and the difference in prosperity is, is absolutely uh, obvious. You know, the, the folks in Wisconsin are watching their economy kind of grind to a halt, and Minnesota's just flying. Yeah. Well, and, and certainly in terms of the, the bigger picture of economic inequality, that um, the living wages do go a long way towards um, towards. A, a lesser gap that mm. those societies that have higher minimum wages tend to have uh, considerably less economic inequality. So there's all kinds of benefits to mm-hmm. to uh, to a living wage, and and I think there's going to be increasing pressures on employers in, uh, through living wage campaigns to move in that direction. But ultimately, governments have a role to play as well to make sure that that there's a, a clear protection for the lowest wage worker. Mm-hmm. So, um, getting back to the um, the people who are poverty stricken, living yeah. in, in poverty, uh, according to StatsCan, as of 2012, the percentage of individuals in Saskatchewan with incomes below the market basket measurement was 10.6 percent, which is below the national average of 12 percent. Mm-hmm. Um, Using the 2012 market basket measurement, the province aims to reduce poverty in Saskatchewan by 50% by the year 2020. Do you think that this is achievable, or do you think that this is overly ambitious given uh, the, the planned cuts uh, by the government? Well, I guess first of all, I would say certainly it is achievable, and I think that that initial recommendation came from the advisory group on poverty reduction, uh, which was set up a joint community mm-hmm. uh, government uh, advisory board set up by the provincial government, and that was that was a recommendation. I think in the final poverty reduction strategy, uh, that was downgraded to looking at uh, cutting in half the numbers of folks in long-term poverty. 
Uh, but in either case, in terms of the direction we're presently going, doesn't suggest that we're going to to get there, and indeed that things will get worse rather than better if we continue on this course of of cuts and austerity. So uh, I don't. It's been quite disappointing since uh, the advisory group made its recommendations to see the direction that we have actually gone, and I think that this once again sort of points out the need for anti-poverty strategies to have a legislative framework and very clear uh, targets and monitoring agents to make sure that uh, those targets are met uh, within, a, within a human rights framework because if it's just left up to day-to-day uh, -to -day public policy, I don't think we're, we're going to get there. So I think you need to, to have greater enforcement uh, of the process than we presently have. And that's one of the, one of the reasons why right now our ministry and, and Poverty Free Saskatchewan as well has been calling for a Saskatchewan Anti-Poverty Act and that's going to be a big push for us in the future uh, to entrench some of the commitments that we have committed ourselves to under international law but which we have no process to, um, to ensure come about. Um, you know, a, a strategy is a great thing because if you don't have a plan, you're going to end up going somewhere else. But uh, if you don't have a strategy that has uh, clear targets beyond just saying we're going to cut poverty in half by such and such a time, but that actually looks at, at how it is that you're going to do it and what are the targets um, in, in a range of areas, including uh, income and, and wages and housing and child care, uh, and the bigger picture taxation as well. You have to have a real clear, uh, clear plan laid out and, um, and ways uh, of making sure that that's kept in check. Um, I mean, I, we do need good people in government and good people in politics, but ultimately I don't think that this can be just left to, to that realm that we need to have, uh, legal constraints in which, whereby, um, a society can ensure that its government acts in those ways. Right. Speaking of politics, yesterday, Justin Trudeau wrote a letter in response to a letter he had received regarding the link between gender inequality and extreme poverty. Um, do you think that poverty is sexist? This was uh, something that he had mentioned that he thought poverty was sexist. It is. Uh, it's also racist. Uh, it's also classist. Uh, there's, I mean, I, and I don't, I'm not saying that to downgrade the, the gender significance of, of poverty, but, you know, on the one hand, I know in terms of our day-to-day -day work that it's impossible to put a single face on poverty because we, because um, really the only re final common denominator is people not having, uh, or having incomes that are too low and costs for big Basic needs that are too high, but that being said, there is definitely groups in society that are uh, bearing the brunt of poverty, inordinately bearing the brunt of poverty, and certainly women are much more likely to be poor. Particularly, um, female-headed single-parent families are, are certainly in, both in terms of our casework, but in terms of the statistics on this, that we know uh, that that we need to have better social policy 
policy to ensure um, things like adequate child care and family-friendly policies to uh, to move more women and children out of poverty. Uh, but we also certainly know that, for instance, in Saskatchewan, probably the the biggest well the biggest gap poverty gap is is with Indigenous people. And when we're talking about when you're mentioning 2012 and the 10 percent uh, of people below a market basket poverty line, uh, one of the things that the Census Canada information doesn't include is ha- has been on Reserve First Nations. And uh, when we enter those stats into the larger equation we find Saskatchewan's poverty rate rising significantly. Um, and so that that's certainly a, um, one of our, our, probably our biggest form of inequality. But, but there's all kinds of, of, of forms of, of gender, disability, um, race, uh, certainly all are, are shown to play a, a significant role in terms of, of both poverty and inequality in our society. Um, it's- verging on that or couching on that are the barriers to overcoming poverty um, discrimination was said to be one of the number one uh, barriers to overcoming poverty as well as low levels of education um, health issues lack right. of work um, experience um, those things all contribute as well mm-hmm. Well, certainly, uh, you know, certainly discrimination and just following up on, you know, the points around groups who are bearing the brunt of poverty. Uh, you know, I hear all the time people coming into Saskatchewan from other places talking about how, you know, racism is just like oxygen here that uh, people re- can really notice notice it. And, and, you know, certainly when we look at, at the fact that the economic gap uh, for Indigenous people, you know, it's, it's, it's too big everywhere in Canada, but it tends to be highest here. And so certainly in terms of uh, um, you, know, you know, whether it's it's revenue sharing with with indigenous peoples, or whether it's uh, employment equity, um, you know, having a more representative, ensuring a more representative workplace, we definitely have to break down some of those systemic barriers uh, to be the, the just and equitable society that we want to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just uh, just further to your point there. I had a guest, uh, First Nations lady on who had uh, moved from Vancouver, and I posed the question where she found racism to be worse, in Vancouver or Regina. And without doubt, she said Regina led Vancouver in racism. Right. Which kind of surprised me. I suppose it shouldn't have, but... uh, I, I'm, that's kind of a distressing comment. Yeah. Well, I've certainly heard that as well, um, from people who, from indigenous people who, uh, who leave the province for a while and come back, is they, they, they pick up on it very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that gets us to the bottom of the hour. So time for a break. And, uh, Peter, you've picked some music for us, some Bruce Coburn. And we'll be playing that out of the break. And, uh, then we'll continue our discussion. Uh, I'm Jim Hutchings with uh, Daylene Sliz, and we're talking to Peter Gilmer, uh, an activist with the Regina Anti-Poverty, uh, Anti-Poverty Ministry. And we'll be right back.
Indeed, waiting for a miracle. <laughs> Jim Hutchings and Daleen Sliz back with Peter Gilmer. This is Human Rights Radio, and we're talking about the uh, Regina Anti-Poverty Ministry. And um, we had some stuff uh, happen recently with government cutbacks. Yeah, they, we're very concerned about the letters that many of our 
clients have received in recent weeks saying that their additional or what's being referred to as extra living income under the Saskatchewan Assured Income for Disability, which is the program for people with uh, significant and enduring disabilities, that, um, that that will be cut back. What it really is is extra shelter money that's been provided to uh, ensure that people who are in reasonable accom- like reasonable cost accommodations can at least come close, if not to actually cover the cost of their rent. And unfortunately, this has been sold as, as a, it's been suggested that there's been a stacking of programs or a double dipping. That's not the reality at all. What it is, is that people have been forced to tie together an inadequate shelter allowance with a rental supplement and then some excess shelter. What this policy change is calling for is that if you receive the rental supplement, that goes against any excess shelter that you have. So if you're a single person with a disability now, the maximum that you would be eligible to receive would be your 459 shelter allowance, and the maximum rental supplement is 262. So that combined is 721 uh, dollars per month, uh, and it's just not possible in this rental market and under these housing circumstances uh, for the 2,700 people who've received these letters to all be finding uh, more affordable accommodations that, that that don't exist. So it's 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 causing real hardship. Some of the history on this too for our ministry is that a few years ago in 2012, at the same time that the said program was coming into place, uh, they did a very similar thing with people on social assistance. So they cut excess shelter for people on the Saskatchewan assistance plan if they were receiving the rental supplement. We, uh, and not only did that happen, but they also said that any excess shelter that they'd received up to that point would be deemed an overpayment. So some people in the rental crisis, uh, housing crisis, people had been receiving excess shelter over the course of a few years, and now it was all being, uh, put on their case file as an overpayment. Mm-hmm. So in some cases, you know, five, $6,000. Um, we appealed uh, the decisions on a case-by-case basis and won at both both the regional appeal level and the provincial appeal level so that it was understood that uh, under the right circumstances, excess shelter could be provided. Um, and we thought that this story was over, but a couple years later, in 2014, they did another province-wide audit for people on social assistance, once again, uh, cutting the excess shelter. This time, uh, we were able, while well, we were able to win at the local or regional appeal board level, when it was taken to provincial appeal board, while they disagreed with the overpayment side of it, suggesting that that could in no way be deemed uh, an individual's faults, that they did say that the excess shelter cut would stand. So um, many of the same people, because a lot of people receiving the excess shelter were people with significant disabilities mm-hmm. on the social assistance plan. Many of those same people who had all the instability caused by having excess shelter cut when they were on social assistance uh are now getting cut again on said, and those same people were told in many cases, "Don't worry, because you, yeah, you may not have the mm-hmm. excess shelter. You may get it cut now, but once you're approved for said, that excess shelter will be safe 
again. And uh, unfortunately, they're now being told that it isn't. So this is throwing many households and many individuals into uh, into extreme levels of stress. And really, the cost saving that the government will gain from it will be lost in terms of the the not just the social costs, but the the financial costs of uh, of um, all the health concerns that are related to it, and additional social support concerns. So uh, it may sound it may sound like uh, cost saving in the short term, but I think there'll be big costs in in the long term, um, both right. on the human side, but but on the financial side as well. Yeah. The, oh, sorry, sorry go um, ahead. I was going to say that homelessness costs the uh, Canadian economy over seven billion dollars a year. And uh, this is emergency shelters, social services, health care, corrections. Uh, and this is from the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness, a report mm-hmm. from them from 2013. Mm-hmm. So it does not cost save in the end. No. And it does cause hardship. And a lot of people end up on the street. And a lot of those people have mental illnesses. I mean, a lot of the people that are homeless suffer from mental illness of some kind. Yeah. We keep having this discussion and when you have the discussion everyone is in agreement oh yes this makes sense and we've been having the discussion for decades and it's recognized that when you provide services for the disadvantaged people you actually save a lot of money Mm -hmm. it doesn't cost it pays to look after these people and somehow that message doesn't quite make it up to the upper floor. I don't understand this. Um, it I, seems I just don't to be get it. something that should be easily comprehensible. Yeah. Um, well, you know, we've got some really intelligent people, I think, in our Ministry of Social Services, in the cabinet. Our premier seems to have a brain. Why is this message? not making it all the way there that they will save money if they look after these disadvantaged people uh, i i fail to see how this is possible well ultimately it does take the public and political will and unfortunately um there's a much stronger more powerful um lobbying effort by those with the resources to protect their own interests uh it's more difficult for people who are already isolated and disadvantaged to be able to kind of mount mm-hmm. the type of um public campaign needed to protect um protect your interests when uh you know under those circumstances so i do think that that ultimately we all have uh, a role to play in making sure that government's feet is put to the fire when it comes to ensuring those types of protections and i do think that we you know we have seen a considerable fight back around this particular these particular cuts mm-hmm. that um and you know we could have predicted that there was going to be a, a very strong response and i think that that um it is promising that the, the government is looking at taking a second look at it and uh 
if it isn't changed, we're going to continue to push mm-hmm. for that change because not only, not only is the is the cut uh, cruel and not only is it destabilizing for so many people, but frankly, it's an unmanageable cut. The uh, those of us who work with income security programs on a day to day basis know that these programs are understaffed. That the human resources aren't there to do the type of case planning on a case by case basis to make sure that um, that all these twenty seven hundred people uh, have their needs met out of this process mm-hmm. of cuts. So I mean, really, it's unmanageable there. And even if they could do that. Uh, there just isn't the affordable housing there yeah. to, for people to go. So yes, it will potentially lead to considerably more homelessness for people with permanent disabilities. One of the things that we've been saying is that governments ultimately have three kind of major policy levers to ensure that people um, can stay in decent housing. Uh, the first is is rent controls, which has been which is something that we continue to believe in, but which is basically being ruled out of the political debate. Uh, the second is a, is a major expansion of social housing, which certainly isn't happening. What we've seen is some decline in, in social housing spaces, and while um, well, there's been a shift or there's been an attempt to make sure that it's only those people who need it most that are in social housing. Basically, it's kind of a shell game because we're not, it's, we're not expanding the number of affordable housing units. We're just, uh, shifting the, the people who are eligible for them and when we really need expansion. So that's, uh, that's not, that's not a route that's, that we're taking. So that leaves one final option, which is mm-hmm. to make sure that people have the incomes necessary to meet their rent. And I'm very disturbed when I hear terms like double dipping or stacking of programs because nobody's getting more than they need to pay their rent. Uh, What's happening is that, um, you know, by putting these programs together, people have... um, the the system to this point has been able to get most people close to being able to cover the cost of the rent. They still don't have enough, but with this cut, uh, it's going to be next to impossible for many people. So it's just not a realistic. Uh, it's not a realistic cut, and the wise thing for government to do is just admit that they made a mistake and to uh, to move on and and start actually moving in the direction of. Uh, uh, of strengthening our, our benefit system. We don't expect, you know, certainly in tough economic times, we don't expect big improvements tomorrow, but we need mm-hmm. to go back to um, slow, incremental improvement uh, and, and moving in a positive direction rather than, than a major cut right after you've announced a, a poverty reduction strategy. And I think... Um going back to the recommendations from the advisory group on poverty reduction would probably be a first step in that since they seem to have not been able to um, comprehend the recommendations. Um, Donna Harpower was not able to... Well, she referenced the study. She referenced it, but, but then... But then the people who were involved in the study said, that's not what we said. Yeah. Well, there was... It, it exactly. was really distorted, and this whole streamlining question came into play because the the suggestion now is that, that's, that this is about streamlining of programs when really it's... This is just 
straight out cuts, cuts to programs. Yeah. Uh, I have no problem whatsoever to having one program like that, having a uh, one shelter allowance that's an adequate shelter allowance sure. for people. Um, and frankly, I think one of the reasons why this has been split up is that the uh, particularly when it was for folks on social assistance was the idea that from a communication standpoint, it looked better to say you were spending money on housing income rather than on social assistance. Uh, but the reality is is that people now have been forced to put those programs together to come close to covering their rent. Um, and, you know, sure, go ahead, have one adequate shelter allowance, but, but don't be cutting and calling it a, a streamlining of services. And certainly the advisory, uh, the community members of the advisory group, or, or a couple of them have called the government on that, and we appreciate that. And they're talking about putting these cuts on hold. Do you think they're going to be eradicated, um, or do you think they are just putting them on hold? Do you think they're? What do you think is happening with the government with this? Well, I do think on our end we have to be vigilant. Uh, I do think that it. Uh, there's some positive rumblings um, from both the Premier and the new Minister about uh, taking another look at the process, taking another look at, at the streamlining question. Uh, but we know that um, that we are going to have to be vigilant and continue to, to mount public opposition. Um, unfortunately, this government doesn't have a history of changing its mind on major policy initiatives, and that causes some cause for concern. But I think this might be this might be the time where they need to say, I mean, really, to be wise here, they they need to say that this is a mistake and, and move on. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, they do deserve credit for having brought the said program into place in the first, or bringing, mm -hmm. having brought it in, in in 2012, and I think that. They They've taken some significant pride in that, but the combination, first of all, of those benefit increases then being outstripped in many cases by a rising cost of housing and cost of, of living, um, and now with these potential cuts, um, really it, it, uh, the, the program as a whole loses a lot based on, on what's, what's happened here. So I think that uh, this is a, the place where they need to say, look, um, this is a good program. We take some we take pride in this program, and we shouldn't allow uh, this this one mistake to destroy the program. Right. So you had mentioned that in Regina there are 55,000 families with uh, two or more persons who uh, earn incomes less than the calculated living wage of, wage of $58,245 annually. Um, yeah, actually, that's that the the sixteen forty six dollar amount, which was based on that that family constellation. But uh, as I understand it, what that's based on is households where wages are below that amount. So it could, it's not necessarily a family of four, but that there's fifty five thousand households in in Regina that live below that particular living rate wage amount. Mm -hmm. So um, so that shows that well, uh, you know. Not all of those people are living in poverty per se, but it shows how many people are on the cusp uh, and not not above what you know what, a, what an actual living wage would be. Right. So you um, can you expand on the legislation, uh, the anti-poverty legislation? Yeah, we've uh, we feel that that 
a central component of a provincial anti-poverty strategy needs to be a Saskatchewan Anti-Poverty Act that would entrench in enforceable legislation commitments that Saskatchewan and Canada have made under international law and the UN covenant on economic, social, and cultural rights. So, for instance, uh, adequacy of income security benefits, living wages, uh, adequate housing, adequate and quality child care, pay equity, these are all things that we've committed ourselves to under international law, but the UN committee has been very critical of Canada for not upholding, and the provinces for not upholding those rights, and it's time that we put those rights into enforceable legislation. Uh, we very recently, as a country, as a nation, signed on to the UN Covenant on the Rights of Indigenous People, um, 2010. Um, it's now been 40 years that we've had the UN Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights and so I guess one of the arguments that we would make is that we strongly believe in implementation on the rights of the UN Covenant on the rights of Indigenous people uh, but it shows that uh, you know, if, if after 40 years we have no domestic remedy or no legislation in place to protect those rights um, those social and economic rights it, it doesn't bode well for us signing on to uh, to a covenant um, and you know like we have to start taking these commitments seriously and these basic human rights seriously so six out of ten provinces have adopted poverty reduction plans uh, and that leaves Saskatchewan Alberta British Columbia and Prince Edward Island um, who say that they do have plans underway um, when I would I would argue that maybe even Saskatchewan now would now suggest since since February that their the Saskatchewan poverty reduction strategy framework that they came out with at that time is the strategy. Unfortunately, uh, with that, they, it's um, two thirds of that document is commending the government for things it's already done, and the final third are have no clear targets. There's that big overarching target of cutting the number of people in long term poverty in half by 2020 uh, but no other guidelines so no guidelines as to what how you know how benefits are going to be improved and increased uh, like one of the things that we thought we would see that we'd hope to see was wage exemptions in, increased um, so that people on income security programs would be able to keep more earned income that's something that uh, that Saskatchewan does very poorly on we're at the, the low end bottom end of the country in terms of that exemption so we thought that was one kind of low cost thing that could be looked at and being moved on sooner rather than later unfortunately uh, they just suggested that that when the financial circumstances circumstances of the province are such that they would look at the wage exemption question and there's no mention of improving benefits whatsoever so you know after that framework document comes on a few months later we see actual cuts to programs mm -hmm. and that's very disconcerting so there's a rally happening in saskatoon today at city hall protesting the cuts 
We had a rally, uh, as you know, you spoke at, you gave a, re- a riveting speech uh, on uh, at the legislative you. buildings on August 12th. What can people do to um, affect change or to get involved or to challenge or help overturn these cuts? Well, I think that uh, calling your MLA's office, uh, calling the Premier's office, calling the Minister of Social Services office, uh, talking to your friends and family about these issues uh, is important. Um, and ultimately uh, making sure that that you know solid information gets out to people around these issues because often I think the, uh, the, there's been a lot of distortions in this debate but uh, I'm feeling very positive about the, the way that the public overall has responded to this and I, I think just fundamentally the values of Saskatchewan are pe- people are such that the idea of people with permanent disabilities uh, who are already are in a position where they can't meet their basic needs are now being asked to live with less is deemed to be unacceptable and that's a message that, that we need to continue to push. Jim? I'm just musing here over on the other side that our MLAs and our MPs are becoming more and more important as governments are downsizing, depopulating their departments. Uh, and so let's put them to work. If you have a problem you know, with benefits of this type, call your MLA, call your MP. And uh, that's what's been happening lately. And uh, they're there to help you, and they will. That's my thought. And social media. Yes, yeah. That's a big one. Anybody who knows me knows that I'm uh, the last of the social media holdouts. Um, (laughs) But I have my connections. So, (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, but that's, I think any kind of communications means that that the message can get it get around is, is great and I appreciate your your um, uh, having me on today and the opportunity to continue talking about these issues I'd just like to mention I'm going to beat a different drum here we're going to have Peter come and talk to the uh, Unitarian Fellowship of Regina on September 18th so if you'd like to uh, hear Peter speak again and there will be opportunity for further discussion um, you're certainly invited to come and, and hear him then 10.30 Sunday morning, September 18th. Thank you. Yeah, I'm looking, looking forward to it. And we still have a minute to go here, Daylene. Okay, so well, I just want to quickly um, dispel some of the myths that people have about people who are uh, on collecting, I don't, I don't like the word collecting, but who are on disability uh, payments or um, some, you know, uh, social assistance of some kind. Some the, the word bums, they're just a bunch of bums comes to mind. You know, people have that misconception. It's not a dif- it's not an easy uh, program to, to uh, there's a high criteria. Yeah, yeah the, particularly with this, in order to be eligible for the assured income for disability, there's uh, an application interview process uh, that is um, very focused on on the extent to which the disability affects your day-to-day life, and um, we know that that eligibility criteria is is very tight. Uh, we deal with, we work with people in the application and interview process and appeal decisions as well, and we know that it's extremely strict that the people who are on 
the said program um, are people who have very significant and enduring disabilities. And there's a lot, I can tell you, there's a lot of people on the Saskatchewan Assistance Plan that probably should be on said now as well uh, who also have those, those disabilities. Anybody on the Saskatchewan Assistance Plan has some form of special need. Uh, the only program left now that is for people specifically with uh, who are deemed to be potentially employable or move in, uh, more rapidly into employment is the transitional employment allowance and uh, we have a lot of problems with that program because it's uh, as inadequate as the other two programs are it's actually has the least the T program as it's called has the least benefits uh, and it also doesn't have any wage exemption so we find it very ironic that a program that's that sounds like it's transitioning people into employment actually the first dollar you earn gets clawed back um, and so yeah we it, we we have uh, a, a social safety net that is is torn and uh, needs to be remended mm-hmm. and with that we'll call it quits thanks very much peter for being here daylene always a pleasure pioneering human rights campaigner peter benenson often said it's better to light a candle of hope than to curse the darkness <laughs>